Sometimes people are not who you expect them to be. Sometimes people are not who you expect them to be. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were watching uh, the Netflix documentary on the disappearance of uh, the Malaysian airline uh, flight MH370 that in 2014, uh, I think March of 2014, just disappeared off the face of the earth. And everyone's like, what happened? We don't know. Very, very sad when you watch the documentary, realize how many grieving families there are and how awful it is. It's not just a, some enigma to be solved, but something sad. Uh, but anyway, in, in the documentary, they, they interview all these different people. They interview uh, all these different experts, uh, family members, reporters, uh, aviation uh, experts, and all these people with their own uh, areas of expertise and their own opinions, of course, about what happened to flight MH370. And there was one lady who I thought was really interesting. Uh, she was French, this French lady. I think she was an investigative journalist. Uh, and she, she, for most of the time, as they introduce her, you feel like she's the only rational person in the room. Like, like she's poking all these holes and all the other theories. She's saying, well, it couldn't have been what that guy said because here's this hard piece of evidence. And so he's wrong. And you're like, wow, she's totally making sense. And it couldn't be that guy because of, of this. Uh, she just, she's just making a lot of sense. And, and you're just kind of agreeing with her. She's very persuasive. But then she gets to her own conclusion about what happened to Malaysian Airline uh, 370 uh, and, you're, you're, and you're, you're ready to disagree with her, right? You're like, okay, this is the lady who gets it. Clearly, whatever she says, that's what I'm going to walk away like. That's what happened. Uh, and uh, her conclusion was very simple. She said, the Americans shot the plane out of the sky, hid all the evidence, and planted fake evidence everywhere else. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> There's like this moment, uh, you know, she, she's like this huge international cover-up and America's to blame. In this moment, my, my wife and I are watching and we're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like we, were, we were with you this whole time and then you said that. You know, first of all, I'm a good American and I could never believe that we're the bad guys. It's not possible. Secondly, though, uh, her theory is 10 times crazier than any of the other ones that they have now been talking about. Uh, so, I mean, all the people who looked crazy look a lot smarter than this French lady. Uh, my first mistake was trusting the French. I should not have done that. I know that. Uh, but people are not always who you expect them to be. Sometimes you think one thing about them, and then they go and they say or do something that makes you think the total opposite. We experience that all the time. People will defy our expectations, for better or for worse, and what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus does the very same thing. That, that we all have expectations about who Jesus is or what he should be doing in our lives. And there's no one who breaks that mold faster and more repeatedly than Jesus himself. He will not. He will not let us define him or encapsulate him in our own neat expectations. He defines himself. And it's our failing, it's our loss, if we don't see why that's really, really good news. Why the fact that Jesus defines himself and we don't define him is the best news that we could ever hear. So this morning, uh, we're continuing our walk through Matthew's gospel. If you're, if you're new to our church family here, it's our practice to walk through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as the weeks go by. We want the Word to set our agenda. Uh, and this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. And if you're a note taker, I'll give you the outline for our, our sermon this morning. It's two parts. 
First, we're going to look and see the Christ that we thought we needed. And second, we're going to see the Christ that we really need. So first, the Christ we thought we needed, that'll be verses 2 and 3. Second, the Christ we really need, that's 4 through 6. So let's, let's dive into that, that first part, the Christ that we thought we needed. Verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So this, this passage here is starting a, a new section in Matthew's gospel. Last week, uh, Jared preached and he finished uh, chapter 10 for us, which is this big long chapter where Jesus is speaking to his 12 disciples, who he calls apostles, the 12 that he sends out to go be on mission for him. And uh, most of that chapter, he's telling them how awful it's going to be, how difficult their lives will be. Uh, but here we get to chapter 11, and it's, it's a, kind of a, a new scene. And John the Baptist, who we haven't heard from a while, is kind of the main character here. Uh, last time John was mentioned was in chapter 9, uh, but it was just his disciples, and they were asking a question about fasting. We have to go back all the way to chapter 4 to see John before that, and that's where he gets thrown in prison. And then we have to go back to chapter 3 to find out what John was doing uh, during his ministry anyway. So just a quick refresher for us on John so we know who it is here who's in prison asking this question. Uh, in uh, chapter 3, we get the summary of John's ministry. It says, In those days, chapter 3, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This is his message. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this, meaning John, is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So that word prepare is really, really key to understanding who John John is and what he's about. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He he says a little more in uh, verse 11 of chapter 3. He says, I, my ministry, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, this, this one who's coming, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this is John's message. He's, he's standing up to Israel and he's announcing to them, someone is coming. Be prepared. Get ready. There's someone coming. The one who is to come. He's like a, a movie trailer. He's saying, come to a, coming to a, a synagogue near you. Right? It's, it's coming soon. There's this, this big thing that's going to happen. That's John's ministry. It's a ministry of preparation. And the one that he's preparing the way for uh, is the one that the Jews called Messiah. Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament. There's all these promises of one who is to come, the coming one, the Messiah, as he's known by the Jews, which just, uh, we often kind of use that word without defining it. Messiah just means anointed one. Uh, It comes from a Hebrew word that just means to smear or anoint, so it means one who's anointed, one who God is is raising up. Uh, We'll look at some of the passages that talk about the coming Messiah in just a minute. But for now, just the point is simple. Israel hung a whole lot of hope on this coming Messiah. And John's saying, get ready, he's coming, he's almost here. That's John's job. But there's one minor problem. Since chapter 4, John has been locked in prison. He's been locked up. We'll find out actually more in a few chapters about why he got locked up and and what happens to him 
in the end, but he's been put in jail. And so he's just getting these reports from his friends. His, his disciples are, are coming to him and, and telling him what's going on out there. He's, he's wondering, like, you know, I'm, I've been preparing the way for this Messiah. What's going on? Like, what's, what's the news? How's it going now? And they're bringing him their reports. And so he can only hear what Jesus is up to. Uh, and that's, that's what it says there. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. So what has John been hearing? What's, what's, what are the, what's the report that John's disciples have been bringing to him? Well, that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Uh, Jesus has been mostly in Galilee. It's northern Israel, kind of, kind of in the boonies, honestly. It's not a real central place, not a real metropolitan area. Uh, he's teaching. It's a Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching about righteousness and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that's, that's coming. He's healing lepers, paralytics, lame uh, the lame and mute, he, he raised a dead girl to life. He's, he's got this healing ministry and this preaching ministry. That's what John is hearing about Jesus. And then as I mentioned in our last chapter, chapter 10, Matthew, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, John, or Jesus rather, took his 12 disciples aside and he told them about life on the mission that he is sending them on. He's saying it's going to be really hard. You're sheep among wolves, uh, but do not fear uh, because I am with you and I'm sovereign. I'm in control of everything. But John's in prison. John hears these reports and he asks a question. Verse 3, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one or should we keep looking? He's saying, my job, I know my job, that's clear. My job is to get everyone ready to say the Messiah is coming. Are you here? Are you... I'm the movie trailer. You're the movie. Are, well, are you though? Like, are, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the guy? Which, in light of everything we know about John, is a really weird question. It's a really, really weird question for him to ask because John, up until this point, previous to him being in prison, John was telling everyone, Jesus is the guy. This is the guy right here, the one I've been telling you about, the Messiah. He's the guy. He's the one. This is the one I've been telling you is coming. Here he is. In Matthew 3, when Jesus goes to get baptized, John's like, shouldn't you be baptizing me? You're the dude. I'm just some other dude. Like, you're the, you're the one who's coming. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Or in, uh, in John's gospel, which is a different John, there's like 20 Johns in the Bible. I know it gets confusing. But John the Apostle wrote a gospel. And John the Baptist, in that gospel, he, he sees Jesus coming at, at the baptism. Matthew doesn't include this detail, but John's gospel does. He sees Jesus coming, and he says this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he, that this guy, this Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. So for a long time, John has been saying, Jesus is the guy. He's the Messiah. And now he's hearing reports he sends his disciples to Jesus and he asks, are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come or should we keep looking? It's a weird question. Why is John asking it? Well, the answer is this. 
Jesus is not doing what John and the rest of the Jews expected the Messiah to do. He's not doing what they expected. He is defying their assumptions, their expectations about who the Messiah is, what he's like, and what he came to do. He's, he's hearing about what Jesus is up to, and he's like, wait a second, I thought you were the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. So far, you've been just meandering around in Galilee, which is a nowhere place. Uh, you spent a long time telling your 12 disciples about how awful their lives are going to be following you. By the way, you only have 12 disciples. That's like barely a soccer team. Uh, and and, he's, and he's, he's like, hey, I've been in prison since chapter 4. I'm your hype man. I'm your hype man, and I'm in prison. What's going on? You've, sure, you've healed a couple people. That's really cool. Not exactly what I was expecting from my Messiah. It's, it's NFL uh, draft season now. I, being from Chicago, am a big Chicago Bears fan, and I've been paying way too much attention. I won't get into the details. I'm trying to stop myself from talking about the trade we made because it's not about the sermon, which is a great trade. I'll just say that much. But when, this is what happens, right? When you, when you draft your new potential superstar, when you have an early pick in the draft, you get so excited about them. You do all the research on their college film. You want to see everything that they were doing. You just get excited. You want to know that this is the guy. You want to see them doing crazy, impossible things. Like I remember when I was in high school, I don't remember who, but some NFL player who got drafted jumped out of a pool onto the pool deck, and it's like, wow, his legs are so strong. Or uh, the Bears drafted a guy when I was in high school, Stephen Paya. None of you have heard of him. That's okay. Um, he bench-wrapped 225 pounds, 49 times. And I watched that two-minute video for like seven hours straight on repeat. It was amazing. I'm sure uh, when the Philadelphia Eagles drafted Jalen Hurts, their fans watched the video of him squatting 600 pounds like a million times because that's amazing. And that's what you want to see, right? When your, your hope is in someone, when you're like, you're the guy we've been waiting for, you want to see them doing amazing things. You don't want to see them, you know, getting arrested or going on vacation, which tends to happen a little too often, unfortunately, with the NFL draft. You want, you want some confidence, some assurance. This really is the guy. Look at all the things he can do. It's amazing. The one we've been waiting for, here he is. That's what John wants from Jesus, something a little more impressive. Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of nobodies in the middle of nowhere. We're halfway through Matthew's gospel, and we're like, well, there, I mean, he hasn't talked with that many people, and he's really only got 12 guys who were that close to him. So John, it's an understandable question, I guess. John's wondering, are you really the Messiah? But I want you to look at this. Look again at verse 2, because Matthew already answered that question. Matthew already answered that question. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... The Christ. The Christ, just so you know, is not Jesus' last name. Uh, no one calls me the Nancurvis. You could. It sounds cool. Um, but his last name is not Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So the Hebrew word Messiah in Greek is Christ. So he's, Matthew's being really subtle, really sneaky here with his writing. He, he's saying, he's saying uh, hey, John heard about the deeds of the Christ. And John was like, are you the Christ? So Matthew's already told us the answer. We're, we're, we're already told that Jesus is the one who is to come. He is the answer to their hopes. He is the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to them. 
So when we read Matthew 11, we're not meant to ask, is Jesus the Christ? That question's already been answered. It's, it's there literally before the question is even asked. The right question is not, is Jesus the Christ? The right question is, what kind of Christ is he? What kind of Christ is he? So to think about that, we need to step back for a minute and we need to look at the first century Jewish expectations of the Messiah that they were promised. And then we need to know who they thought was going to show up and be their Messiah. John says, should we, he's speaking on behalf of the Jewish people, should we look for another? Are you the one we expected or not? So to understand their expectations, we're going to do two things. Uh, first, we're going to look at the Old Testament promises about the Messiah. And then we're going to look at the historical context. Uh, because a lot happened between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament that uh, pretty dramatically reshaped the Jewish expectations for their Messiah. So, but first, we'll, we'll look at the Old Testament. This is what was promised to God's people. Three main things, three promises uh, Israel was given about the Messiah. First, they were promised a king. The Messiah would be a king who would sit on the throne of Israel, a, a son of David. David was their famous uh, greatest king, and they were promised a king who would sit on his throne. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. God is speaking to David, and God says this. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you. I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, that was the first king, it didn't work out, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did you notice how many times he used the word forever? Right? In, in the immediate context in 2 Samuel 7, this, this promise is about Sol Solomon, David's son. There's a few things he says in there uh, that I, I left out that are explicitly, clearly only for Solomon. But the promise that a son of David, one of their descendants, would sit on the throne of Israel forever is what they were hoping for, what they were expecting. But when you get to the first century, when Jesus shows up, the Jews don't have a king. That promise is unfulfilled. They're waiting. They're waiting for this king. Second uh, promise about the Messiah from the Old Testament. The Israelites were promised that the Messiah would restore their nation, their land, their, their, uh, their government, really, uh, more than just the kingship, but their nation itself, that they would have the land that they were promised. So uh, if, you, if you know your Old Testament, they're promised this land back to Abraham, and then they get to it, uh, and then what happens? They get kicked out. The exile comes, uh, and the uh, Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, all these foreign powers come in and take them over and take them out of their land. And so Amos 9 talks about uh, this promise that, they, that the land will be restored. It says, in that day, ah, that's God, will raise up the booth of David. There's that Messiah shout out, a connection to David. The booth that is fallen. I will repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens, eat their fruits. This is beautiful prosperity. I will plant them on their land 
and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. So again, fast forward to the first century when Jesus shows up and they don't have a king and they kind of have the land, but not really. They're back in the land, but this image of renewal and prosperity is not there. Part of the reason is Rome is in charge. Their current overlords is the the Roman Empire. They're just this backwater little province that Rome is ruling over. And so life is hard for them. This promise is unfulfilled. No king in the land is not restored, which brings us to the third Old Testament expectation. The Israelites were promised a Messiah who would conquer their enemies, who would destroy the enemies of Israel. That's Zechariah chapter 12. By the way, all these promises show up throughout the Old Testament. I'm I'm summarizing with with a couple passages that are helpful. Uh, But Zechariah chapter 12 says, On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the capital city, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Israel. Jerusalem. Now notice this one and the last passage in Amos are talking about on that day. It's this end times, this future promise of what God will do. He here says he will vanquish the enemies of his people. He will destroy them. Those are the three promises that they were hoping for, that they were waiting to be fulfilled. Remember, they're being ruled by Rome right now. So their enemies are not conquered. They they don't really have the land and they don't have a king. But after the close of the Old Testament, when they come back from exile, but again, it's not really quite coming back, there were 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, and there's a whole lot that happened. It's called the intertestamental period, very creative name. Uh, But yeah, so it's really, really important to understand what happened in those 400 years to see how the Jewish expectations were reshaped, or maybe not reshaped, but were kind of, were streamlined in a particular direction. They took these promises and they said, this is what that means. So after the return from exile, where the Old Testament pretty much ended, Israel was conquered again, uh, this time by the Seleucid Empire, which was a, a Greek empire that was all about spreading Greek culture through conquest. So the Seleucids would would roll into a town or province or wherever, and they would uh, banish the religion there, and they would say, hey, here's our culture, here's our language, here's our religion, you're going to do it all, thanks, we'll kill you if you don't. So uh, that's what they did to Israel. They actually attacked on the Sabbath, so the Jews couldn't fight back. Pretty dirty move. But it gets worse. Their leader, the leader of the Seleucids, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Don't worry, his name will not be on the test at the end. Antiochus Epiphanes, he banned the Jewish religion and he made the Jewish temple, the center of their religion, the center of heaven on earth was the Jewish understanding of the temple. He made it a temple to Zeus, the pagan Greek god. And to add insult to injury, He walked into the Holy of Holies, not just the the temple, but the center of the temple, the place that only the high priest was allowed to go and only once a year and only with a rope tied around his leg so they could drag him out if he died because he was going into the presence of God. 
Antiochus Epiphanes walked in to the Holy of Holies. He killed a pig on the altar. Pigs, swine were unclean for Jews. He sprinkled its blood on the Jews there, and he forced the high priest to eat its flesh. It is difficult to illustrate for you how insanely uh, traumatic that was for the Jewish people. That is the most extreme kind of religious PTSD that you could ever imagine. It's the kind of thing you never forget, you never forgive, that makes the, you know, the Hatfield and McCoy feud look like you know, a kindergarten squabble. Your God, for all intents and purposes, it looks like your God just got conquered by the Greeks. Antiochus Epiphanes walked in, did this awful thing, didn't get struck by lightning. He's got your land. He's forbidden your religion. Could it get any worse? So the Jews, understatement, did not like this. And one of them, his name was Judas Maccabeus, led a revolt. This is known as the Maccabean Revolt, which is actually where uh, contemporary Jews uh, get Hanukkah from. The Maccabean Revolt, and the revolt was successful. They took the land and the temple back. Uh, And so, as a result, uh, Judas Maccabeus, who was this great warrior who led the armies of Israel, was viewed as this this semi-Messianic figure. He he was partially, at least, not quite fully, but partially fulfilling the promises God had made about the Messiah. So from that event, there was this rising opinion among the Jews that even if Judas Maccabeus wasn't the Messiah, if he wasn't the Messiah, the real one would be a whole lot like him. And so not all Jews were fully bought into that, but but there were certain sects of the Jews, like the Zealots, who were all in on on this kind of militaristic approach. Uh, But there was definitely this underlying current among the Jewish people that the real Messiah would be just as violent, just as political, just as militaristic as Judas Maccabeus was. So when the Romans rolled into town, that was the expectation. We need a Messiah to kick these ugly pagans out, to sit on our throne, and to give us back the land. That's what we're looking for. One who, like Judas Maccabeus, does those things. In short, the, the point of that history lesson is this. By the time of the first century, when Jesus shows up, the Jewish Jewish expectations for the Messiah were very much that he would be a political hero and a military conqueror. That's what they wanted. They had committed a very dangerous mistake. They had reinterpreted, reshaped their understanding of who the Messiah is, who he should be, their assumptions about God's promises were read along strictly political and militaristic lines simply because that's what they thought they needed. They looked around and said, what we need is someone, we need a warrior Messiah, so that's who this Messiah better be. So you understand John's question. He's he's swimming in this water, this this view that the Messiah will be something like that. And he's looking at Jesus and he goes, are you really the guy? Are you really the one who is to come? Should we look for another? 
So when the first century Jews looked at Jesus and heard he was the Messiah, they demanded that he meet their expectations about who a Messiah is and what he's supposed to do. It's a mistake that has repeated itself throughout the generations of Christianity. We make this mistake over and over and over again. We start with what we think our greatest needs are. Our own felt needs. Here's what I think my problem is. Here's what I think I need. And we expect or demand Jesus fills those needs. He answers those problems. As Jared said last week, everyone wants Jesus so long as he serves them. And when we do that, we make Jesus nothing more than a Rorschach test of our own desires. These personality, like inkblot tests, right? You see what you want to see. We Rorschach Jesus into the Messiah that we want him to be. We determine for ourselves what kind of Christ he is. This is how you get wicked theology, like the prosperity gospel, which is a bad name because it's not real prosperity and it's not the gospel. You start with the assumption that what you need most in your life is a full bank account and physical well-being, just health and wealth. And then, sure, you're going to demand that Jesus fulfills those needs. I decided those are the needs, so that's what Jesus is going to do for me. It's a watered-down, me-centered, Rorschach Jesus, a cheap dispenser, dispenser of money and personal stability. What a pathetic Messiah that is. Same thing we do today with an overly politicized gospel, an overly politicized Messiah. And both sides do this depending on where your starting line is. Don't, don't think it's just the other side, right? So some will either demand Jesus has come to own the woke libs or to rebuke these evil conservatives. Like he's the, he's the Wizard of Oz or something, right? Come to give the conservatives a heart and the liberals a brain. That's Jesus, Depending on what you think the need is, that's what you'll demand from him. We make him fit the mold that we make for him. It's what happened in the Crusades when the banner of Jesus was raised up as one of military conquest. It's what happens today when we make Jesus nothing more than a political figure who happens to support everything that we already believed, who never corrects us, who just fits into the mold that we made. And the problem with that, the problem with all of that, prosperity, political, whatever, is it sets the bar for what Jesus came to do far too low. That's, that's not a very good Messiah. That's not the Messiah we really need. If we think our needs are that minor and worldly, we make Jesus a a lame superhero to show up when we want him or a genie to grant us our wishes, which are cheap financial gain or a political savior. All we get is a Rorschach Messiah, and we don't need a Rorschach Jesus. A Jesus made in our own image will always be inferior to the real one. The real Jesus is the one that we need. And that's who we meet in verses 4 and 5. Which brings us to our second point, the Christ that we 
really need. So Jesus hears John's question, and I love this. He does what Jesus does better than anyone. He answers it a little bit indirectly. So remember, Matthew 11, verse 2, we're told Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Don't wonder about that. That much is clear. And then verse 3, John asks, are you the one? Are you the Christ? And so Jesus, the first part of his answer, he, he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. He doesn't come right out and say, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. Surprise! Messiah's here. It's not what Jesus comes out to do. He knows that a blank yes would do nothing to dismiss all these assumptions. He knows the history. He knows what they're thinking he's come to do. And he, he says yes, they're saying, okay, great. Go kill those Romans. He's not going to let them think that. He won't let them take the truth and misconstrue it in the ways that we just talked about. So his indirect answer is meant to challenge John and the Jews to realize what he really came to do. The Messiah he really is. And this is what he tells John. Look at this. Here, look, here's what, to go, go tell John what you hear and see. Here's what it is. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus makes it clear, right? John has not been hearing fake news. He, he doubles down that, yes, he is the Messiah. Here's exactly what he's been doing, but he's inviting him in to come and see what kind of Messiah he is. And he lists six things that he's been doing. Well, he does five things and then one extra one that he kind of tacks on. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but he says he's making eyes see. He's making legs walk. He's cleaning the dirty. He's making ears hear. And he's raising the dead. All these miracles we've seen Jesus do throughout the Gospel of Matthew so far. And what's, what's interesting is uh, in, in Greek, all these verbs, none of them are in the past tense. He's saying, I did this. This happened. He's, they're in a present tense. He's saying this is what's continually happening. This is what's just, just exploding out of my ministry. These things are happening. Legs that could never walk before are walking. Eyes that could never see before are seeing. There's an active, an ongoing sense. Something is happening now. There's this event that we're in the middle of, John. Do you see what's happening? So in the very way he puts it, he's drawing attention away from the miracles themselves and he's inviting us to see what they really mean. He's not just some, some, you know, he's not doing some cheap parlor tricks. So we're amazed at the tricks. Like when you go see a magician, right, you're, you're wondering about the mechanics, right? How did he pull that rabbit out of that hat? How did that happen, right? You're wondering how, about the mechanics of the whole thing. That's not what Jesus wants us to do. He's saying these things are happening continually. They're happening over and over again. So your eyes should be drawn away from the miracles to say, what are they saying to you? What do they mean? And the picture Jesus is giving us is of a Messiah who has not come to focus on earthly politics and power, but to bring individual people total salvation from their deepest needs. These miracles are meant to show John, Israel, and us what we really need. They unlock a view of our spiritual situation because we do not need some, just a physical pick-me-up to the situation around us. We need something deeper. We need something addressed in us. 
This Christ did not come to first restore a land, but to restore a people. He came to set his people right, not the circumstances around them. He's not focusing on Rome right now. He needs to come first to make his people right. Because what they need is not just a king or a land or Rome, yeah, kicked out of there. They themselves need to see. They themselves need to walk, to be clean, to be here. They need to be raised from the dead. They need a total salvation. Again, not primarily from the things around them, but from the problem within them. God's people need to see God, but they're blind. In Exodus 33, Moses, who, I mean, he's the, he's the best of the best in the Old Testament, he asks to see God's face. God says, you can't see me. If you'll see me, you will die. Because sinful man can't look at a holy God and live. God's people need to walk with God, but they're lame and wayward in their sin. They need to be cleaned from their unrighteousness, but every day we dirty ourselves with wickedness and further and further unrighteousness. They need to hear from God, but they're deaf. They're dead and they need life. And in Jesus, God came to do all of that. God came to bring the salvation that they really, desperately needed. Not some cheap, inferior product, because before they needed Jesus to sit on the throne of David, they need him to reign in their hearts. Before they need a restored land, they themselves need to be restored. Before they need their physical enemies conquered, they need Jesus to go to war with the enemy within their own hearts. Jesus is the Christ they really needed. But how does, how does he do that? What's the secret? How, how does he make his, his people, how does he make their blind eyes see and their deaf ears hear and their lame legs walk? How does he raise them to life? End of verse 5, he says, the poor have good news preached to them. Which, if you're paying attention, is weird. Like, it makes sense, right? The, the, the dead, what they need is life. I get that. Okay. The, the blind, what they need is to, to see. The deaf, what they need is to hear. But the poor need preaching? That doesn't quite seem to fit. This one's tacked on at the end in order to draw attention to itself here. And the, the word for good news preached is actually just one word in, in Greek. It's the first time and the only time this verb appears in Matthew's gospel. We've seen the noun, but the verb only appears here. A literal translation would be this. The poor are gospeled. It's the verb of gospel. That's what they need. They need the gospel. It's the word gospel there. And Matthew's being strategic about putting it here, lest we think that Jesus' miracles are strictly physical and it's only about literal eyes seeing and literal ears hearing. He's saying, no, 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 there's something deeper, something spiritual going on here because the poor are being gospeled. They're hearing the good news that they don't need a superhero Messiah, they need one who has come to suffer for them. They don't need a genie to answer their request. They need the God-man to answer for their sins. They need a king who will go to a cross to pay for those sins. 
a redeemer who will restore them and conquer their sin that reigns in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need more than anything. That's what we need. Whatever needs you feel, we have a lot of needs. It's a million things that we genuinely do need, a million problems in this world. There is nothing deeper, nothing more fundamental than your need to be right with your God. Your need to be made whole. For Jesus to heal you at the deepest level. That is your need and that is your Savior. That's what he came to do. That's the Christ that he really is. Not some cheap political Savior, but one who answers the deepest problems everyone has who goes to that cross to pay for those sins and by his spirit applies it to your life so that you stand before the king of the universe, holy, righteous, and pure, when previously you were blind, deaf, and dirty. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. That's good news. That's really good news. But there's one one problem. Not everyone will see that. Not everyone gets that. Not everyone wants that. That's why Jesus says, verse 6, says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. We've seen very clearly Jesus is the surprising Messiah. He's a surprising Messiah. It's very much like what J.R. Tolkien is doing in Lord of the Rings uh, with Aragorn, this mysterious stranger who's out in the wilderness, uh, but who is also the king who is to come, the heir to this mighty throne. I haven't quoted Tolkien in a while. It was my New Year's resolution to use less Lord of the Rings illustrations. I made it till March, which is pretty good. I'm proud of myself, personal record. But Tolkien wrote this famous poem about Aragorn's kingship, and it very much applies to Jesus, this kind of surprising Messiah. He says this. You'll know probably a lot of words from this, but you maybe didn't know they were from Tolkien originally, because everything good originally came from Tolkien or, or the Bible. It says this. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. That's what we see in Jesus' ministry. He's the crownless king. You, you look at him and you don't think, oh, here's the Messiah. Finally, he's here, just like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. You don't look at him and think, king, here we go. Jesus is the gold that does not glitter, the surprising Messiah. But he's also the offensive Messiah. He's also the offensive Messiah. That's what he's saying in verse 6. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me, because a lot of you will be. He's not offensive for offensivity's sake. I'm making up words, that's Okay. He's not offensive just because he wants to be, or because it, you know, making people angry is the goal, but he knows that what he's saying to John 
is the kind of thing people will trip up over. It's not the Messiah they wanted. He doesn't meet their expectations. In fact, he reverses them. This isn't a Messiah who came to conquer, but a Messiah who came to die. And Jesus expects them to be offended. Literally, the Greek word there is scandalized. He's not just surprising, he's scandalous. Because if first and foremost, his mission is about making people right. It's about dealing with sinful hearts. There's something wrong with you. And that's offensive. That's offensive. We're we're all fine as long as the enemy's out there. If we can all agree, hey man, Rome, I hate Rome so much. I can't wait for Messiah to get him out of there. They're the bad guys. We're all on board with that. But wait a second, if the problem's in here, if the problem is me, that's offensive. Destroys my pride and my own self presumption, but the scandal actually gets worse than that. We're not, Jesus is not just saying the problem's in your own heart, the problem's your own sin, the problem is you. He's actually saying, here's how bad the problem is. The Son of God must die to make you right. There's no higher cost that could ever be paid. And it, it's an offensive thought that this is the Messiah, that I'm so bad that he, the son of God, the king of the universe, must go to a cross and hang there for three hours and die. That's offensive. Scandalous. There's an ancient uh, piece of graffiti in the catacombs under Rome that ridiculed the early Christians for such a claim. That that's, that's their gospel? That's ridiculous. This is what the, the graffiti looked like. It's a drawing on a wall of a man on a cross with the head of a donkey. And there's a man bowing down. And the inscription says, Alexamenos worships his God. And the implication's clear. Like, how ridiculous is this? This guy, Alexamenos, presumably an early Christian, one of our brothers... He's being ridiculed. Like, it's, it's as ridiculous as worshiping a man with the head of a donkey. A God who died on a cross to save you? That's ridiculous. How offensive. Jesus is the surprising, the offensive Messiah. But Christian, that is the best news that you have heard today. It is good. It is so good that Jesus defies our expectations. Because if all he did was answer what we want, we would have pathetic riches and not the riches he really gives. We would not have the hope that we really, really want, that we really, really should have. We would have a cheap Messiah. But if Jesus defines who he is, it means he is bigger and better than we could have ever Imagine. So the Old Testament promised a Messiah who would be a king, who would sit on David's throne, and Jesus is that Messiah. But his throne is higher and greater than a chunk of metal in Israel. He sits on the throne of the cosmos, ruling over everything. The Old Testament promised a Messiah who would restore the land, and Jesus is that Messiah. But again, but again he's, he's bigger and he's better than they imagined. He's restoring the whole world. 
Romans 8, 21, it says, the creation, not just some patch of land in the Middle East, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Revelation 21, verse 5, behold, I am making all things, not some things, I'm making all things new. You you wanted your land to be restored? Guess what? I have got something infinitely more beautiful, more glorious, more amazing than that. I'm fulfilling that promise, but I'm fulfilling it in a way better than you could have dreamed. The Old Testament promised a Messiah who would conquer the enemies of his people. And one day, the Bible is clear. Jesus will return. And he will return in wrath against the enemies of his people. As I said, I said this a few weeks ago in theological equipping class. God, God never says vengeance is wrong. He never says vengeance is wrong. God says vengeance is is mine. Evil will be held to account. No evil deed, no unjust act will will go unanswered for. But before he comes to destroy the evil around us, our Messiah came to destroy the evil within us. He let himself be conquered so that our sin could be paid for. Because his return would not be good news for sinful people if he did not first make us right, if he had not first paid our debt. And now that he has, we can look forward to his return with joy and confidence and assurance that it is a good day. That it is a day of wrath for the evildoer, but for those in Christ, it is a day of joy and wonder, the highest of our hopes that Christ would return. So whatever pride I have to lay down for that Messiah, whatever sense of offense I feel, is totally worth it. Whatever that means for the wickedness of my own heart, that's fine if Jesus is really bigger and better than I ever dreamed. I want him to define himself. I don't want to define him. Because he addresses my greatest need. So brothers and sisters, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if his way is scandalous in this world. We've just walked through Matthew 10. And how many times did Jesus say, it's going to be hard? But he also said, don't fear, because this really is the right way. This really is good. It's the upside-down nature of his kingdom. It looks like weakness and a curse, but it is strength and blessing, even if, even if it turns your world upside down, if it defies your expectations, it is better than you could have dreamed. There's a famous Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision, And it starts with uh, this prayer. I'll I'll read for us. We'll close with this. Uh, This prayer is called the Valley of Vision. And it captures this, this scandalous yet good nature of Christ's kingdom. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory 
Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of Vision, let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You are so, so good. And we, we pray you would open our eyes afresh to see how good you are. To cast off these silly, simple, pathetic things that we demand from you and see, God, that you are far greater. That if you define who you are to us, it's far better. God, break us of our pride. Break us of our desire to self-assert. Here's what my needs are. Here's what I demand from you. God, help us to have a great vision of your glory and your goodness. Cast ourselves on you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.